Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. No matter where you are listening from this evening, we're glad you are. And sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and welcome to those who listen to the program. We come to the privilege to be in your home this evening. We are looking forward to your questions. Uh, Pastor, we have a question that has come in from this part of the Caribbean. It says, in my reading this morning in Isaiah chapter 19, the writer spoke a great deal about Egypt and Assyria. Israel was not mentioned until verse 24 and 25. From my understanding, I was thinking that Egypt was referring to the nation of Israel. Then this morning on Dr. Dr. Vernon McGee's program, I think I heard him say that Israel was born out of Egypt or was born in Egypt. Can you please clarify that for me? Well, let me first of all uh, address the matter of the confusion between Israel and Egypt. Um, there is a, a movement that seemed to conflate the nation of Israel relating to something to do with um, Egypt or Africa, and that is a myth. Israel was never part of Africa, never part of uh, etc. So we got to be very, very clear about that. The other thing is that if you read Isaiah, what you're talking about, uh, it deals with that section as dealing with Egypt and dealing with the uh, other nations. That's when God is going to chasten <clears throat> those nations because of their um, relationship with Israel and the offenses that were committed, and then it come back to Israel. So there's no. Um, correlation between the two in the sense of identity. Now, to make clear what Dr. McGee was trying to say in this message, I didn't hear the message, but I, I know him, and uh, I know he has a, a broadcast, and I know his through the Bible series. I know he also is a, um, a fundamentalist evangel- evangelical, and I know that he has a view about Israel that is cognizant with ours uh, in terms of independent Baptists, etc., but what he really is saying is that Israel as a nation uh, only developed as a nation uh, in Israel. Remember when, when uh, Israel came down, uh, Jacob came down, there were only 70 people that came down uh, that were part of the, the, the what you might call the, the seed or the, the core of what would become the nation of Israel. This was the families that came down. Out of that 70 By the time after being in bondage for 400 years, um, the nation of Israel became a nation. And when they left Egypt, it's estimated between 
1 to 1.5 million based on the amount of men that the Bible talks about. It's like about 600,000 men that came out of Egypt. And that had nothing to do with the women and had nothing to do with the children. But if you do the estimate, it's very easy to see that's between a million and, and a million and a half people. So that's what he really meant, that it was only in Egypt that Israel developed into this mass group of people that had a common identity so that when they left um, Egypt and went into the wilderness and went into Canaan, so that's what he means that they were born as a nation uh, in Egypt. It, it, the, Egypt became the uh, the incubator, as it were, for the nation of Israel to develop. And also, you remember that when Israel left Egypt because of the ten plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians, the Egyptians gave Israel resources, uh, gold and silver, etc., etc., when they were leaving. Uh, and that became the part of the wealth of Israel as well, initially. Um, so that's what he means. It doesn't mean that they're Egyptians. or, But what he's saying is that living in exile in, is- in, in Egypt for over 400 years as slaves, then when they came out, they came out with um, gifts from the Egyptians, and they were able to form a core nation in terms of national identity. And of course, that was molded and shaped by the laws that were given in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, the moral law, and also the other religious laws and ceremonial laws that are given in um, Leviticus that had to do with worship. So that's what he means uh, in terms of um, the relation between Israel and Egypt. But again, for that, to Israel become a nation with only 70, they had to be in some nation. Uh, remember that they came down into Egypt mainly because of the famine. And that's where Joseph became the, um, the uh, almost the prime minister of Egypt uh, for a period of time and, and led to Egyptian prosperity by seven-year economic plan to save uh, the grain for seven years because seven years were famine. Out of that, the Egyptian authorities were able to buy up the land of the people. That's how the, the government itself became rich. It was the seven-year economic plan that Joseph had come up with. And uh, Israel, of course, was allowed to come down with the... Um, Jerky was allowed to come down with um, um, the 60, uh, 64, 66, 66. And then, of course, it was himself, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons. Thank you for that question. We appreciate it. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 738 you can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420 or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. A question that has just come in from the Southern Caribbean. Good night, Pastor. I have a question for tonight's episode. Should an age difference count in a relationship? For instance... What if the female is six years older than the male? Can you have a relationship with that age difference? I, I don't see there should be, depending on the maturity of the individuals, to be very honest. I think the, that's the whole key thing, the maturity of the individuals. I don't think an age difference, uh, as a matter of fact, I think my wife is four or five years older than I am. Uh, yeah, my wife is four, four, yeah, yeah. four and a half <laughs> years older than I am. Uh, we've never had a problem or the disparity did not really has never affected our relationship so I don't think that that should be an issue I think it all has to do if the lady is older than the guy a lot depends on her maturity and her uh, ability to allow him to lead 
the temptation um, when the person is older uh, tend to want to take the harness of leadership mm-hmm. and that's where the problem would come in but if the person is uh, biblical in thinking understand that the man is the head of the home he's the leader of the home and willing to follow him his leadership uh, then I don't see uh, any major problem when it comes to age there are a lot of other factors that matter uh, so age is not one of those big ones uh, I would say to you such things as the common faith um, religion that the both of you should have a common religion otherwise you're going to have problems not only among yourselves but the children are going to have major major issues there are other things such as um, family background uh, family of origin um, if you're coming from two different backgrounds and uh, depending on your age you become so indoctrinated and so accustomed to your lifestyle uh, it would be wise to visit each other's home to see exactly what the situation is how he treats his mom how he treats his brothers and sisters because the way he does that probably going to treat you the same way same thing he should come to your home and see how you respond to your dad and if your mom how you respond again again that kind of response is going to be exhibited by you so i think that's important and even simple matters as as um um culinary things are important as well. I mean, uh, I can tell you, uh, Barbin is not a Vincentian. He's not a St. Lucian. And what his palate is accustomed to, um, unless he's prepared to adjust, it can become a, a very, very problematic unless the wife is willing to learn how to do Bajan culinary skills. But even those things, uh, even more age is just a factor. Uh, as, you, as you know, there, there are people who are old age, but very immature. You've got people who are very uh, young, but very, very mature. So yeah. I think the matter of maturity is far more important than just age as a factor. The other thing I would say to you as well, um, it is generally better for the the older person to be the man, generally speaking. And this has to do from the point of view of intimacy. Um uh, I think that is important, um, and, and that is a factor. But really, in truth and fact, I, I wouldn't allow that to um, in any way interfere in the relationship. I think the far more important things that should be of concern, and uh, provided that the person is mature, you're, you're having the same faith, you have the same values coming from similar backgrounds, you visited the home, get acquainted with the family, etc., etc. I think you should weigh those things very carefully, and especially... Um, the kind of character of the person is more important than just the chronological age. What about occupations and that type of thing? Does Should that play into determining who you marry, or you just need to be aware of it going into marriage? It could either do that, but I, I think, for example, a police and a nurse is a bad combination simply because a police may be on call 24 hours, a nurse is on call almost 24 hours, and very often when he's coming and she's going out, there's very little time for real togetherness. So I think that would be a, a factor as well. The other thing, if the woman is go- going to marry a man and she wants somebody that's very close, she's been robbed or uh, just can't wait to have a, a real genuine companion, if that person, if she's working in the morning, and he's working at nights, that could be a problem as well in terms of, of feeling safe and, and, and that kind of thing. So I do feel it's a, a factor that she should be considered. But again, uh, the two people have to get together and see how this thing can work. 
and it may very well be that um, they decide that at some point in time we're going to change jobs to accommodate the relationship but don't give up the, the the job now because you just want to rush into a thing. Then you, you have all kind of financial issues. Your first two years of marriage, the major issue finance. So if you're going to insecure situation where you're financially strained, you're going to put a lot of stress on the marriage, which can lead to the disintegration of the marriage, and you don't want that. No, I don't want this to sound like sure. a counseling session here, but what advice do you have for the individual? They may be young, they may be old, and they are considering... Uh, joining together with another individual through marriage, and one of them really likes to communicate, really likes to talk, and the other one is content to just be quiet and not interact at all. Well, generally speaking, that's the woman. She loves conversation. Women love to communicate. They're very intimate. They like uh, a lot of contact. and um, So that is crucial for a woman. I think what women need to be more discerning about is that during the dating process, Nathan, generally speaking, the man is the talker. And then suddenly after the marriage, that shuts down. He prefers to be more with his friends than he is with his with his wife. They have more things in common. I would say to, to women, if conversation is vital to your relationship in terms of um, the success of how you want your marriage to be, it should be considered if you have a man who is mute. He may be attractive. He might have resources. He might have a car. He might have a house. He might have a good job. If you're looking for financial security, okay. But if you're looking for something where you have a relational, uh, strong relational relationship uh, where you could communicate, you can talk, you can debate, you can discuss. Um, I think you're headed for tremendous problems uh, if you go into that kind of relationship. I've seen, I've known of doctors especially women doctors, who married men that um, when I talk to them, it's very, very clear this seemed to be a massive mistake. The level of uh, communication, the height of it, is so much with the other person that I wonder, where do their minds ever meet? Can they discuss things? At what level do you discuss? Now, that's always bad when the woman is smarter than the man. Always, because she has a... It's not that she really wants to take over. Mm-hmm. But if you are not playing the role that you should as a leader, a woman will take over. No question about that. So I think that uh, that is something that is very, very... Um, need to be looking very carefully. And I would suggest that if you're going to... If you're thinking seriously of going into a relationship where there's a possibility of marriage, my recommendation to you, if you are a Christian, is to... Find a good counselor, a good Christian counselor. Find a uh, a pastor that you can trust, that you know is going to be objective, and, and get his real input on it. And it, I, I think the danger today, I would not recommend anybody going into marriage today without any kind of counseling. And what I call it, not just premarital, pre-engagement counseling. But pastor, why do we need to do that? Because we don't have problems. <laughs> counseling is when you have problems, right? Yeah, well, we don't have problems yet. But problems are going to come. And very often you're so rosy-eyed and so enamored with the person. In other words, when you become infatuated or what you call love, the lights go out. I always tell people, put on your socks before the lights go out. Because you end up with a blue top and a red, red sock. And before you fall in love, uh, head and heels over this person, 
my suggestion to you is to put on your thinking cap and get some objectivity because once it becomes a a relationship where the emotions take the precedence over objectivity, uh, you're not going to see the blind spots that another person can point out to you. Now, the, the thing about this is, this, um, if you love a person, you care about a person. Uh, Sir, people should be able to point out things that are negative or that are not positive in the person's life. But that should not of necessity mean that you can You should work on those things if you see that these are things that are vitally important to the success of the marriage. But the thing is to get objectivity. The mistake that most people make is to think that when we get married, we jump into bed and problem solve. I am suggesting to you problems just began. And you need to prepare yourself long before you get into this. Uh, and remember that the commitment of marriage today is not like it used to be uh, three or four decades ago. People got married with the concept of permanency. This is not the mindset of the average person today. The average person today is that, you know, I'm going to go into this thing. If it doesn't work, I'll jump ship, I'll jettison it, and I can always board another ship. That is the mindset that you have today, and that's what you've got to, you've got to understand. That. And by the way, that's not only the mindset in the world. That is also becoming the mindset in the church because pastors have accommodated uh, remarriage and remarriage and remarriage without um, examining the the, the matter of who is the innocent party in this whole thing and whether this person has legitimate biblical grounds for divorce or not. I think pastors have uh, in in some way um, encouraged and endorsed this thing so that it is becoming very, very common now for divorce, and I would suggest that counseling has become vital. It's almost a a mandate, a necessity uh, before you go into marriage today. You're listening to That's Truth, a live, interactive call-in program. But if you don't want to call and ask your question live on the air, you can still interact with us in a number of ways. You can text or WhatsApp your question to us at the following number, one 782 one four five four. You say, what's the topic I'm allowed to ask a question on? It's wide open. It doesn't have to relate to any other previous question tonight. It doesn't have to relate to any material that pastors prepared for tonight. You have a question about life, about what the Bible says, or about religion, or uh, life after death, whatever it may be, you can contact us, and Pastor will answer from a biblical worldview. I did want to say something else, Nathan, uh, in connected with the Marish thing. I think quality of life of the two persons, um, as much as possible, should should jive. Um, and what I mean by that, I've known of marriages that have disintegrated uh, over what you might think simple things. For example, a person is accustomed to a certain level of living, certain standard of living. He likes Kellogg's. Yeah. This other person now comes from a lower economic, and um, he likes sunshine or one of these other lower brands, et cetera, et cetera. And the person goes into marriage uh, perhaps thinking that, um, you know, I would like to buy high-class stuff because I had low-class stuff. And sometimes they might find that one of the partners is very, very tight on money. And especially if it's the husband that is more fiscally uh, conservative. If the woman is, you know, she like this high class type of thing, uh, that if he's the main breadwinner, that can I, I've known of those things where the person wanted brand products, uh, didn't want to buy like sunshine, want to buy breeze, didn't want to buy like uh, I'm trying to remember some of the names here, <laughs> but uh, and I and what happened? The marriage eventually broke up because 
he thought she, um, coming from a, a fairly poor background, should, you know, uh, should be concerned about savings, quite frankly. But to her mind, this is now the time to really enjoy the niceties of life. So she is spending what he's going to save, and you had that clash. Eventually, it, it broke up. Very simple thing like that, Nathan. So you should communicate even before you get married, but you never know exactly what questions you should ask or every topic that's going to come up. So how do you prepare for every scenario before you get you married? You can't prepare for every scenario, but that's where counseling comes in, the things that you never thought about. For example, a lot of people go into marriage without thinking, of, what are your expectations? Not, neither party have ever asked them, uh, each other, what do you really expect from me? Mm-hmm. Seldom is that question ever asked. And that is something that you have to say to the people. Listen, you get into marriage, find out what your partner's expectations are. Uh, uh, take children. You know a lot of people get married and they never discuss how many children we want. And then, not even during the dating. Not process? even the dating process. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised. Uh, they don't discover the finances. Are you going to have? We're going to have a joint account, separate account. That is not even discussed. A lot. Of, listen, I think what happens is that as you go into as you go into um, a relationship, I tell people this. Remember this: you're not growing apart as you are seeing each other. You're going towards each other, and once this physical intimacy. In that relationship, the relationship becomes physical. And that's the danger that happens. And too many times, they get to that point of physicality, and they're never able now to discuss other issues because when they meet, it's to be physical. So they don't have time to discuss real issues. What about in-laws? Are there any traditions your family have that my family, I mean, what do you, I know in America you've got Thanksgiving Day, you've got Christmas, right. people come together. But you may come with a family who couldn't care less about Thanksgiving. Right. But that's a major thing for you. Those are things you should be able to discuss and debate and see, okay, we differ on this thing. But what do we do in a situation where we get married now? Do we go one year for the Thanksgiving with your family and then we have a time together? Those are issues. There's so many things that can be brought to a person's mind that they didn't even think about or dream. Because remember, generally speaking, when you go to a counselor and he's been married for a number of years, he's seen things that (laughs) this little neophyte, this green person, ain't got a clue what to look for. So they're able to say to you, have you thought about it? Have you looked at this? Have you discussed this, et cetera, et cetera? And the other mistake I find a lot of people make, Nathan, is not going to the other person's home, meeting the family, and assessing you know, and I'm talking sometimes of going when the least expected. I could put everything in place when I know it is coming over, but what about going over that day when no to see what the real world is like? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that might not, the person might even have thought about that, you know. But that's the only way you know what is really going on in the family. The moment you tell them a week ahead or two years, we, you know, we we, we coming by you, whatever. It is. Man, everything is in order, dung pack. But the truth of the matter is, normally the home looks as though a storm passes through it, and you get the impression, well, wow, this person is neat. This person is fiction all the time. <laughs> How do you build trust in a relationship before that marriage starts? And here's a practical example: as you're dating, should the lady be able to at any time or vice versa at any time take the other individual's phone and be able to scroll through maybe what they've been searching or what they've been looking at or does that you have to wait until marriage to have that level of uh, openness well well, let's 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 talk about the 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 amount of trust i think that um both the man and the woman 
um, in terms of, of trust. I think there are things that you can do. Uh, you can, I don't want to say pretend to do sometimes. Take the matter of um, one of the biggest problems. Take the matter of intimacy. You can pretty much assess by what moves the person makes or um, where they want to go or what they want to do and stuff like that. You can pretty much assess the moral standard of that individual, right? Uh, and sometimes you can even ask questions to kind of see exactly where they're thinking. So that is where you, you, you understand, can I trust this person morally? You, 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 should, you should test that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I must say this as well, Nathan, it's important as well when you are in a dating process to be very, very clear about morality. And when I say morality, you want to, if you are thinking that you are marrying somebody who's untouched, somewhere along the line, if that is important to you, you should get that information. You don't want to be surprised. And then they said, but I, I didn't tell you this. And before you know it, they had six men before they had you or six women before you had you, etc. And I think it's important that that person say to you, listen, this is, this is what I was before. Uh, this is what I am now. And if this is a concern to you, I want to get this out. Because let's face it, the Caribbean is too small. You find out eventually mm-hmm. a lot of things that, you know, people tell you, you come into contact with people, et cetera, et cetera. So those things are important. What is important to you, you need to discuss. How early do you discuss that, though? I mean, is no, that, that, a- that part of it is a process. That it cannot okay. be the first or two. It, it, okay. Again, the matter of discussing uh, intimacy uh, in terms of children, in terms of frequency, that kind of thing. That's in the, 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 the most when you get into the engagement stage. But there are a lot of other things you can do that can lead up to that. So you don't want to get into this physicality and discussing these things at such an early age. The important things would be like family, career, those are things that need to be discussed, um, uh, former relationships, that kind of thing, hurt, pain. Uh, and I must say this as well, the amount of abuse uh, if that has occurred to either partner, at some point in time, that needs to be dealt with because that destroys marriages, a lot of marriages, uh, carrying these scars into the new relationship. And then years later, you get all these flashbacks, touches, create all kinds of issues. And before you know it, you say, but I wish you had told me all of this before because I might have made a different decision. But now you're married and you can resent the fact that you were never told certain things. Mm. Uh, I think all, all of that needs to, to, to be discussed. But I do feel that um, it's important to build trust. And what was your, your, your area of trust, were you think? Uh, like being able to pick oh, up yes. a phone. I do feel that if you're, if you're seriously dating, I mean, you're, you're now committed to each other in the sense that it's exclusive relationship. I, I think that could be a level of trust. I, I could give my wife my phone if I was dating her at any time. And she said, I want to see your phone, whatever it is. If there's a hesitancy, there should be nothing on my phone that should cause my the person that I am dating, that I'm going to engage to, that I should have any misgivings about. And I think I can't figure out why. Uh, if I am the, the person you've chosen and we're mo- moving in a direction where we are now serious, you know, not as a casual dating, we're now leading to engagement and marriage, what can I have on my phone that I should not want you to see? So I, I would see nothing wrong uh, of saying, you know, um, it's part of the element of trust. Here's my phone. And uh, you can, whatever you want to do, because 
a lot of women, a lot of married women have discovered affairs that men are having hmm. because they left the cell phone and, uh, and they're just going to, etc. I can tell you case after case after case with that kind of a thing. Hmm. Uh, so I do feel that's a vital point that there should be liberty and freedom at some point once you're going to see which relate this leaving the debate that a person should have access to the telephone and be able to, to check and see what's going on. It's just a safety measure, a safety net. Uh, and I think... Um, if the person can say to you, well, go ahead, take it home with you, do what you want to do with it, that gives you an element that this person is truthful. They're not having, they're not playing the field. They're not having a second hand or third hand or waiting in the, you know, somebody else waiting in the shadows in case this doesn't work out, and vice versa. So I do feel that access to the cell phone, to my mind, would be one of the ways of demonstrating trust. I think that's a good one, especially in these days yeah. and in this time we're living. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8 o'clock. We are glad that you are listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. Oh, I want to add one other thing quickly. Not to that. As a pastor, I have a computer in the office. I don't have a password. In other words... Uh, anybody can go in there anytime and be on my computer. The only danger I see in that is somebody mess me up. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. know? But other than that, any person can use, have access to the computer. And, and part of the reason why I've done that, I've heard too many things about right. pastors, especially when they send their computers to get repaired, and the repairman goes into these boxes and discover what the pastor has been doing. So I've, I've, uh, I've, that's an open thing. The secretary, the youth pastor, uh, one of the any trusted person can go into my computer, check it anytime, see whatever has been there. That is part of my accountability and security and protection, not to engage in activities that I know can destroy my ministry. That's why that freedom is there, and it's done quite deliberately, uh, so that people can learn to trust me. Once you're married. Uh, should the wife have the password for the husband's computer or the husband have the password for the wife's computer? To be very honest with you, I have no qualms about that. My wife can use my computer anything she wants. Um, but why, why, should I, why should there be anything right. on my computer that my wife should not have access to? Think about that for just a moment. The most intimate relationship, it's a marital relationship, uh, when you surrender to each other, there is no greater humiliation, uh, personal humiliation, than, than that. So why then should there be something that she doesn't have access to? And I don't like secrecy, right? I don't like secrecy. And I think that the a couple should have such liberty and such freedom that my computer is there, you know, whatever it is. There should be nothing between the two persons, that should be any cause for suspicion because the moment there's something that you've locked into that I don't have access to, a little private something, I think there is something there that you're hiding from me and that causes me to be suspicious and, and uh, trust begins to break down. So I really think there should be this, this kind of free. You know the Bible says in the book of Genesis which kind of explains this, and the man and the woman was what? Naked. There was nothing. I mean, it was nothing between them. It was total transparency. And I feel that kind of transparency also relate to the cell phone, the computer. Um, I, I can't see any reason why, uh, unless there's something wrong there, why they should have this barrier uh, and so on and so forth. Now, again, I, 
I probably can see if you're a banker and I am dealing with people's accounts. I was just thinking of a lawyer. Yeah, or lawyer. I'm dealing with, with uh, different individuals or even a counselor yep. if he has notes, right? I, I can see that part of it. But again, generally speaking, um, it, it should be freedom of access, freedom of information that relates to the two persons, et cetera, et cetera. If you have a question, you can join us on Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and then click on the Facebook Live video feed. And in the window that pops up in the comment section, you can send your question, your concern, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Uh, just a note from the listener who sent in the first question of the evening. Pastor, thanks for the explanation about Egypt and Israel. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for sending in your question. I, while we wait for your question, a question for Pastor Murphy. What was the contention between Michael and Satan over the body of Moses in Jude 9? And let me read that for you. Jude is only one chapter, so verse number 9 says, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring up against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now the incident referred there in the book of Jude, verse 9, um, the historical event itself is recorded in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 and 6, so maybe you can read that. Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Bethpora. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. Yeah. It's very, very clear that the he there that buried, the antecedent to he is the Lord, so the Lord buried Moses, um, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, has made a very um, helpful suggestion. He, he's, he pointed out that uh, this was probably done because the children of Israel might have made an idol of Moses' body, or they might have made his sepulcher a kind of a religious center, just that you have the, uh, the, all the, the Muslims go to Mecca, mm -hmm. where uh, Muhammad is buried, and has become a center of, of, of worship and idolatry, quite frankly. He said that he believed that's the reason why uh, the Lord made sure that when Moses died, that his body was buried in Moab in a place that nobody can discover. Uh, it's also very clear from what he's saying here that there was a contention between Satan and uh, Michael the archangel over the body of Satan. Uh, it, it, it would indicate that somehow Satan wanted to use that his death is buried, is buried, maybe for the same purpose of allowing the Jews to know the location so that it becomes a center of worship and idolatry. So I think there is some measure of truth as far as that is concerned. We do find, though, that in the book of uh, Matthew 17, that Moses appeared with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration and spoke to Jesus concerning the demise of his death. And that would indicate somehow that Moses had some kind of a glorified body because he was actually seen physically. And he seemed to have a body like our Lord after resurrection that he could come and he could disappear. Um, so Michael was successful in his f fight against Satan over the body of Moses. 
and is, that is clear the fact that Moses now has this glorified body. But this is pure speculation and sanctified imagination. There's no uh, explanation as to why uh, this there was contention of the body of Moses, but it does make sense. Uh, because we see that religious leaders, those who are held in high regard, their place of burial, their place of death, now become centers where people congregate uh, annually or, 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 or monthly or whatever uh, for the purpose of adoration and, and, um, and worship and reverence. And I think that was preempted by the fact that um, the Lord buried Moses in a place that the Jews did nowhere. But it seemed as though Satan wanted to take the body and somehow use that to create idolatry in Israel. But Michael somehow was involved in making sure that didn't happen. So that in actual fact, Moses was glorified. Uh, and, and thank the Lord for that. Although we would have another Mecca. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As you were talking about things being glorified, I've heard the illustration of um, the Catholic Church says they've got a piece of the cross and a piece of the cross, and if you put it all together, it would be way bigger than yeah, the cross. Yeah, they've got hundreds of crosses. That, that is the that is the folly of, of this kind of uh, worshiping uh, elements and objects, etc., etc. Now, you're right about that. If you take all the pieces in all the churches all over the world, you have a dozen to two dozen crosses, so it's very obvious that the pieces of these things are just fake. But uh, again, people—I don't know how people can know that as a fact and still be blind to the mythology of worshiping some piece of a cross. But that's become ingrained in them as a religious practice. A question that has come in from Antigua. Good evening, all. Pastor, should it be a red flag if a man tries to dissuade openness with cell phones? Men today tell women they should just trust and feel personally attacked when they are asked to view the phone. They will go as far as to call the woman crazy. Should this be a deal breaker? I think it's a red flag. Uh, Again, it depends on, again, if you're talking two people that are dating, two people that are headed to a permanent relationship, marriage, uh, exclusive relationship. Again, I think the day in which we live, transparency has become far more important than it used to be. The way you can hide stuff, the access that you have today, uh, and especially I would say, Nathan, uh, the problem of pornography yeah. is grave. And is that just a problem with men? Oh, no, 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 no. Women, it's a... <laughs> uh, I used to think it was a male problem only, but I think it's about 34% of women mm. normally uh, watch porn as much as men watch porn. So it's not just a male problem, it's a universal problem that the, 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 the gender issue is, is, is uh, doesn't really matter these days. But I, I, I feel that if I was dating in today, and I was young, and I had access, and I knew the utilization of the uh, these phones and computers and stuff like that, I would be wanting to to be able to have access to uh, the person's phone. I would I would see that as one of the uh, important issues in terms of trust. Right? If you can't trust me to uh, look at your phone. How can I trust you in a relationship? I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. So the phone is more important than a relationship. Uh, if that's the case, you better get rid of the, <laughs> the relationship because let him marry the phone. <laughs> 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 no, but I do feel that I think there's a valid point. I really think that women ought to be wise enough these days, and men too, to let the person understand that you know um, the, 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 the phone and the abuse of the phone today is such that 
it becomes important for me to be able to to see what you're actually looking at and who you're talking to, uh, so that I make sure that you're not trying to mislead me and fool me and hoodwink me, and carry me down a rabbit trail and leave me hanging at the end of the day. A question for Pastor Murphy: Exodus four twenty four says, "And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him." In Exodus. Why did the Lord seek to kill Moses? Well, if you read the um, the full historical setting, um, you will discover that um, what happened there is that Moses had refused to circumcise his sons, and the Lord met him on his way back to, uh, to deliver God's people, and God would, would take Moses' life. Now, there's a reason for this. If you look at Genesis 17, verse 9 to 14, Moses, the Israel was given instructions that every male child should be circumcised by the time the child was eight days old. This is clear instruction as part of the Abrahamic covenant called circumcision. Could you read Genesis 17, verse 9 to 14? And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And uh, verse 12 says, And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house or brought or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Again, it was a covenant relationship that Israel had entered into with God. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. The evidence that you were in that covenant was... Moses knew this. And Moses should have known better. But Moses had an Egyptian wife, you remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had two sons. And she called Moses a bloody man after he committed the circumcision. Her opinion of circumcision was that this is not something I want to my sons. And you can imagine back in those days, you just think about what that meant, Nathan. Taking a knife or a stone and cutting off the foreskin of your, the penis of your child, mm-hmm. basically. The blood, etc., etc. And she said, you know, and so he listened to his wife to accommodate her as opposed to following obedience in the covenant relationship. And God saw that as a capital offense. Remember that Moses is now called to lead his people. So if the leader is not obedient to simple command as the covenant, how can you lead the people? And that's why God uh, uh, stopped him, was about to slay him, and then Moses turned around and circumcised his his boys. And uh, again, Having seen that the severity of his decision to disobey God and the consequence of it, he then did the right thing. He circumcised, and therefore the Lord still continued to use Moses. But the important thing there, uh, that we think that disobedience is a trifling matter. With God, disobedience to a very clear command has dire consequences. And Moses uh, almost suffered death as a result of a one act of disobedience. Remember that we are in the condition we're in today. 
fallen sons of Adam because of disobedience. Book of Romans chapter 5. Uh, I think this is a lesson of the, the, uh, that disobedience before God is a very serious, sober matter, and we must not trifle with what God has revealed as a standard for us to live by. So, uh, priority should be given to obedience. And by the way, in Romans chapter 1, you have to turn there, Nathan, 28 to 32, there are 19 sins that are mentioned that Paul says are worthy of death. And some of those sins are not the big sins that we talk about, right? So it just means that because God has revealed His will in relation to these 19 matters, disobedience to those 19 things should bring death. See, So it's a matter of obedience is the real matter that is being taught here. And uh, God is warning us of the severity of the consequences when we willfully go against God's revealed will and we break His covenant, there are consequences question for you in relation to circumcision, and I don't mean to be sure. crude, but I'm sure I'm not the only one that has had this thought. Why did God choose such a private sign? I mean, it's not... I'll just leave it at that. I think uh, two things. Uh, number one, I think it has to do with the uh, symbolism of cutting off the flesh. The flesh is the sinful, anemic nature that we have the the not trying to be crude either the penis is the symbol of life it's how you get life right and I think that that uh, the, the connection between life and, and, and the flesh that um, the fleshly life must be cut off I think that is part of the whole thing and where man's virulence is in terms of his sexual prowess that that has to be controlled because you remember after you're circumcised you're sore for a number of days as a matter of fact one of the two of the tribes of Israel got um, a, fa- a family to do that after he, they had ravaged the, the sister mm-hmm. and then when they were sore they went in and slaughtered all of them so I you think that it has to do it is it has a symbolic spiritual aspect of, it, of the cutting off the flesh uh, and, and severing of the flesh especially uh, in man's in the ear of man's prowess, basically. The other thing um, I have discovered um, this long time ago, that the eight days, within eight days, uh, there is something about the highest level of um, antibodies in the body and stuff like that, that is the best period to have any kind of circumcision. That is a scientific discovery that uh, they used to wonder, scientists used to wonder why eight days, and then they discovered this was the ideal time to do something like that. But I, I think it's more a symbol, because you read in the book of uh, Paul writing, the cutting off of the flesh, right? And uh, he talked about the, it's not an outward circumcision, but an inward circumcision. And the, that, I think that is part of the symbolism that, um, that the Lord is trying to convey in the use of the cir- uh, circumcision. So there is a trend, a push uh, in certain circles to follow the law in mm-hmm. today's day and age. Mm-hmm. Should we be following circumcision? Absolutely not. I mean, Paul makes that very, very clear in his writings. As a matter of fact, I think Acts chapter 
15 is a classic example where uh, Jewish Christians who were steeped in Judaism, remember that Christianity came out of the wound of Judaism, as it were. The first church was a Jewish church, and they were so aligned to the Jewish law, and then they now wanted to impose the Jewish law on the believers uh, to the Gentiles, where Paul went on his missionary journey, the Gentiles got saved, and the people who came down from Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish remnant, the Judaizers, who were insisted that the believers, the Gentiles, be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And they had a, a what you might call an ecumenical convention where they bring all the churches, all the heavy rollers, James and Peter and Paul and the other leaders, and they discussed this matter to see what was the Holy Spirit's decision on this matter. And they sent out a letter, uh, an encyclical letter to all the Gentile churches and they just put certain restrictions on the Gentiles and it had to do with not eating things offered blood fornication and there's one other thing that was mentioned in the thing that was the opportune time and that is where it was settled that the believer is no longer under the law there's no obligation to observe Jewish circumcision uh, that was settled in Acts chapter 15 and sent to all the Gentile churches and in, in sending that letter Paul's uh, it was written in, in the book of Acts it seemed to us and the Holy Spirit it's not just a human decision that was made and the Holy Spirit that these are the things that the Gentiles should do. And it had nothing to do with the um, holding to the Jewish laws, whether it be dietary laws or ceremonial laws or law-keeping or Sabbath-keeping. All of that was uh, completely ignored in that encyclical that was sent to the Gentile churches. A question that has come in as a follow-up to the discussion about Moses Good night. Was it Moses who circumcised the sons or his wife? I believe I read that Moses was sick to the point of death, so his mother, wife, circumcised the sons, then Moses got better, or is this just reported differently in different versions of the Bible? No, I, I I've got the reference here. here. It's Exodus four twenty-four to twenty-six, read and I'll it, read man. that. Yeah. It says, And it came to pass by the way in the inn, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou at me. Verse 26, So he let them go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumstances. Yeah, it's clear that she did the operation because she was aware that uh, her husband was going to to die. And uh, I am suggesting to you as well that Moses realized that he probably demanded that her that she do it, otherwise he's going to die. But after she did it, and that's why she called him, he's a bloody man. Remember, she is coming from Egypt. Egypt doesn't practice these uh, things. And the reason why Moses has waited this long, the child should, the children should be circumcised on the eighth day. But I think it was in order to please his wife, who was opposed to circumcision, uh, that that is why he delayed rather than obey God. And then the Lord said, okay, I'm going to take your life for it. And then, of course, in that moment, um, he, he must have told his wife, you better circumcise these children, please, because I'm dying. And she actually did the act itself. So you're right about that. Thank you very much for your interaction. Thank you for your questions and your thoughts. We look forward to hearing from you. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. 
I know no one has called yet tonight, and sometimes you may not want to be the first one to call. Uh, This is a safe place to call. We're not here to belittle or to mock or to ridicule like so much talk radio is nowadays. We're here to hear your question and pastor to answer it from a biblical worldview. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can send us your question on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And then in the comment section, you can let us know what your concern is. Uh, Pastor, could you please explain Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 15? And let me read that. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 15 says, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Well, the question is about uh, explaining that verse in relation to the way of Cain, the era of Balaam, and again saying, of course, so what do we mean by the way of Cain? What do we mean by the era of Balaam? And what do we mean by the gain saying of Korah? Um, Corey. The, the way of Cain um, that is mentioned here uh, has to do with um, the form of worship. Uh, there are two ways. There's the way, God's way, and there's man's way. And clearly when it came to Cain uh, in the book of Genesis, when it came to the matter of sacrifice, where Cain and Abel are offering a sacrifice unto God, it was very clear from the book of Genesis chapter 3 that after man has sinned, that God had killed an animal and clothed uh, uh, Adam and Eve with the skins of the animal. So blood was shed, and the picture there, or the teaching there, is that blood is shed in order that man may have a covering. That's the basic concept that is being portrayed. And I'm very sure, I can't speak it fairly dogmatically because it's not there, but I'm very sure that this was explained to Adam, uh, the fact that blood is the conditionality by which you approach God because of sinful man cannot approach God except his sin be covered. That is why Abel is able to offer a sacrifice from the, the animal kingdom and he kills a lamb and, he, and the blood is shed. Cain, on the other hand, doesn't bring a lamb. He brings the best of the earth. He does bring vegetables and, and fruit, etc., etc. But that's not the basis of um, confronting God and coming to God. When you're bringing fruit to God, what is God going to do with the fruit? He can't eat it. It doesn't have any worth. To it. What bothers is him if you want to approach me that sin is your problem. Your sin got to be covered. I am saying to you, the only basis by which you can approach me is the shedding of blood. And I want you to remember the gravity of sin so that you've got to shed blood so that this becomes a reality. So I th- the way of Cain is the self-will of worshipping God, how I think God ought to be worshipped, rather than as God has directed me to worship. We can't approach God through the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. But Cain is one of those self-made religious people who believe and who are audacious enough to say, you know what, I'm going to worship God my way, and if God doesn't like that, that's his problem. Are there people like that today? Of course, of course. There's so many people that you have a conversation with, and by the very religious people as well, they are depending on the church to get them saved. So because they go to a certain church, they are locked sure that they're going to heaven. When you approach them to share the glad tidings, the gospel with them, they are highly offended. I don't, I don't want to invite you. To, I, I don't want to come to your church. I'm not talking about coming to my church. 
I'm talking about how you get saved. And you know what they end up saying? Well, I've been going to this church for so long, and um, nobody's going to change my mind, my granddaddy, my great-granddad, etc., etc. And the idea is they're not really concerned about finding out what does God say. It is their way. It is their church's way. And irrespective of what God has revealed, that's the way of Cain. It's a self-will form of worship that ignores the way that you come to God, which is now through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament time, it was through the shed blood of innocent animals that were type of Christ who would come. So that's the way of Canaan. The way of Cain is the self-will worship that ignores the divine order uh, or program of, of, of redemption. Now, the other one is the era of Balaam. Uh, what's the era of Balaam? Remember that Balaam was a false prophet who was called by King Balak to curse Israel because as Israel is going into the promised land and Balak learns of the success of Israel in conquering nations, he now wants to forestall the advance of Israel. So he hires this false prophet Balaam to curse Israel and uh, Balaam uh, for a a price. Uh, He's a mercenary prophet. He's paid. Uh, He is now attempting to curse Israel but he tries twice and was on the third time and then uh, he asked the Lord, should I, should I do this? Should I? And the Lord said, no, don't do it. And then he said, come back. And the Lord said, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. You shouldn't do it, but then you still ask me. You go ahead. You do what you And then, of course, that's the story where the donkey saw the angel with the sword to kill Balaam and veered off the path and crushed his foot against the wall. And he started beating the donkey. He said, you know, why you did that? And, of course, when he, a miracle took place, and the donkey said, you're an idiot, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you can only see what I can see, I just saved your life. What are you beating me for, right? Quite frankly. But that's the error of Balaam, and it is this. Because Israel uh, is not a, a, a sinless nation, she has her own errors, that somehow Israel can be cursed, uh, and that somehow God will destroy Israel. Israel is uh, is um, impregnable. Israel is uh, imperishable. And Israel is indestructible. As a matter of fact, Israel is God's chosen people as part of God's program. And look at Jeremiah 31, verse 35 to 37, to show you how indestructible the nation of Israel is. Jeremiah 31, verse 35 to 37. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37 30, uh-huh. reads as follows. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Uh, what verse do you want me to go through? No, that, that's just, just in the essence. In other words, the Lord is saying, look, the only way that Israel will ever be destroyed is if the sun doesn't shine, the moon doesn't shine, the stars are put out of existence, and even the seas disappear. That is just a hyperbole for saying the nation is indestructible because Israel is part of God's plan. It is true at this current stage that they have unbelief. Read Romans. God has put them on a shelf temporarily. 
and God is grafted in the Gentiles. But when God is finished with the Gentiles and the church is raptured, then he regrafts Israel into his program. Paul explains this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, and, uh, but that is what Balaam's error was, thinking that somehow Israel will be destroyed, even because it... And what he did, by the way, is that he realized he couldn't curse Israel. So the next thing he did was this, was to get Israel to intermarry with the heathen so that they would become idolaters. And uh, again, the error of Balaam is causing God's people to compromise their morality with the view that they will be destroyed and that somehow God would curse them even because of their sin. But God is a God who uh, protects Israel. She's the apple of his eye. He has a plan for her. He will chasten her because of her sin and she's currently in that state of, of chastening still. But a day is coming when that will be reversed. But right now, he's grafted in a new plan. The church is part of his plan. And when he's finished with the church, the church is raptured. He'll be grafted Israel into his plan and that's what we mean uh, with the coming tribulation. So that's the error of Balaam. Joining with the heathen to somehow cause Israel to compromise and sin so that God will bring a curse and they be destroyed. And then the other one is the ginseng of of, uh, Korah. Um, In the the word ginseng means to uh, contradict. It means to challenge or to speak against. And the incident that the person is referring to is in Numbers 16, verse 1 to 35. I don't think you can read all of that, but you can read a section to give a flavor of what was going on there in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16, uh, verse 1 says, Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the son of Elab, and On, the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take two upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show you, show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen, will he cause to come near unto him? Okay, I think that's enough to give you a gist of what it is. But what you have here is a full-scale rebellion against Mosaic authority. God had called Moses to lead, and you've got Korah as the ringleader of 250 uh, people who have joined together to challenge Moses' authority because the argument is we all belong to God and God is among us. So why are you trying to elevate yourself above the people and why are you trying to be the leader? The truth of the matter is that Moses did not want leadership in Israel. Uh, he did everything to avoid becoming the leader of Israel, giving about four different excuses. He couldn't speak, uh, Cheryl wouldn't listen, etc., etc. So it's not Moses' pride that elevated him to the point of authority and leadership. It was God that elevated Moses. And now uh, you've got the ringleader, Korah, and these 25, 250 different rebels are now challenging and speaking against Moses. There's another thing, if you go on later in the, in the same chapter, you'll also find that they also want to become priests, intrude on the 
priestly order. Remember that the priest must come to Levite. So they also trying to assume the priest role. So the rebellion against Moses' authority and the intrusion on the, on the priesthood is what they, they, they meant by the gain saying, the contradiction or the challenge uh, of Moses. And of course, we all know what happened as a result of that. This overreach and this challenge to the leader that God has chosen uh, led to the earth opening up and consuming Korah and his family and these 250 rebels. So what it, the saying of uh, Korah has to do is the challenging to the person who God has vested in authority in and uh, not willing to follow their leadership in terms of the capacity God has placed them. Uh, and that's the lesson that is, is there that need to be learned uh, from this particular incident. A question that has come in. Uh, I know Pastor Murphy does not like going into discussions on religious sex, but it's been nagging me for quite a while that Seventh-day Adventists believe that women should not, as per the Bible, should not have a leadership role in the church. So how is it that they follow a religion based on a woman? This is not to bash them or anything. I just don't understand it and could use some insight. By doing this, isn't it really the woman who is the church? Shouldn't the church be built on Jesus? Well, I am not too sure that the Seventh-day Adventists do not allow women to hold authority in the church. i got to double-check that. I was of the contrary opinion because when I was in St. Lucia, St. Lucia has the largest contingency of SDA churches in the Caribbean. I was there uh, about 22 years ago, and they had over 45 assemblies uh, when I left. And I suspect that they probably have a lot more, but um, I had to speak at a funeral in the Seventh-day Adventist Church for one of my neighbors. The, the neighbor asked me if I would speak on the behalf of this uh, his wife, and I, I did. And I, I, as far as I know, women play a very prominent role in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And you can see why, because the whole foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is based on Ellen G. White as a prophetess. If you remove Ellen G.'s writes, writings and her prophetic utterances from the Seventh-day you don't have a Seventh-day Adventist Church. Their following of the Fourth Commandment as mandatory is not based from some scriptural discovery that they made by reading the book of Exodus chapter 20 or elsewhere. It came as a result of she having a vision and taken to heaven and being shown in the, uh, the, the sanctuary when they opened the ark in, the, in the, uh, the heavenly sanctuary. She saw the Ten Commandments and she said she saw a halo around the Fourth Commandment. That is how Adventists started worshiping on the Sabbath. And the, 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 you know, so a lot of this, uh, a lot of their teachings, their beliefs, uh, are based on Ellen G. White's teaching. So the whole foundation, basically, of the Adventist movement is the prophetic utterances of Ellen, which they consider, um, if not inspired, semi-inspired. And you'll be surprised if you got a Seventh-day Adventist Bible, or uh, and, and a lot of the commentary relates back to her teaching. It's as though her teaching is the authoritative, authoritative voice on the particular doctrine or teaching. So I, I'm, I'm going to double-check that, but I think it is the very opposite um, in terms of the role of women play in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But you cannot have a church founded on the prophetic utterances of a woman and at the same time uh, um, somehow 
downplay the authoritative woman, role of a woman in the church. So that doesn't seem to be in harmony with what I understand, but I will double-check that and, and get back to you in, in next week. I just did a quick Google search and came up with an article here. Adventist in North America, Europe, and a few other spots have been ordaining women to function essentially as clergy, but they are not considered ordained in the same way that men are. They are banned from leading regional conferences, they are banned from establishing or closing churches. Okay, well, they're playing the pastoral role with the exception that they are not ordained in that capacity. But the only thing they can't do is establish churches and start churches. Mm-hmm. But their function, the functionality basically is in a pastoral role. So that makes some clarification because I would take the document there that, w- that came up. I would think that would be the position of mm-hmm. the church today. So the the excuse would be that a woman cannot be an ordained pastor, but she can perform the duties of a pastor without being ordination. Uh, that seemed to be what that, that particular statement is being is mm-hmm. making there. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. You can also listen online at radiolighthouse.org. And... If you are on Facebook, you can go to, for this program, you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and in the comment section, you can comment your question for Pastor Murphy. Not on Facebook, you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can call and ask your question by dialing 1-268-462-7420. Pastor, what is your view on missionary dating? And I did a quick Google search of that. That is a believer dating an unbeliever in order to win them into the kingdom of God. Well, that is contrary to the Bible principle not to be unequally yoked together with believers. And is also contrary to Paul's teaching where he says, if a person is going to marry, let them marry in the Lord. Uh, Dating is not designed to be a missionary trek. Um, You should only date believers um, and uh, because whoever you date, you're going to end up marrying at some point in time. And if you are dating an unbeliever, number one, if I was an unbeliever and a Christian dating me, I don't take you seriously. I really would not take you seriously. And the tendency of me would be to eventually, because I don't think you're genuine, uh, is probably to take advantage of you. In other words, fool you and maybe make a, a kind of a false decision, go to church with you sometime and go forward at the altar, and, and uh, but it's not real because I want to sleep with you. So I, I think it's a grave mistake that anybody would view dating as a mission endeavor. That's not the purpose of dating. The purpose of dating is to find somebody who is compatible with your beliefs and then to see if they're compatible with other aspects of your life uh, in terms of family background, in terms of maybe even education, in terms of, of views on, on, on social matters and other matters of importance, and then preparing a platform 
for a future marriage by discussing issues that are vitally important to the success of the marriage. And then also, I would say to you, uh, finding if you can be integrated into each other's family, because it is not just about you and this individual. You're married into a family, and I think that's a very crucial thing that needs to be worked on before you say, I do. So I am against the idea of making um, dating a missionary endeavor. I don't think you could find biblical support for that whatsoever. Uh, Biblical separation, even if you go back to the Old Testament, the God's people were never, never to intermingle with the unsaved heathen people in terms of a social context that could lead to marriage. Right? And uh, if that is the Old Testament standard, we have a much higher standard today. We look, if we are Christian, we look to God to provide us with a person who is a believer like ourselves. Uh, that would be the standard that the Christian should take. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 843. A comment that has come in from a listener, um, Moses's father-in-law was a priest of Midian, mentioned in Exodus 18.1. So his daughter, Zipporah, was evidently a follower of Jehovah. So to suggest she did not want her son circumcised since she was an Egyptian may not be scripturally accurate. Well, that's a matter of debate, but it's very clear her what she said to her, uh, to Moses, after she had actually done the act. This is something bloody, basically. You know, this is something I I don't want to get involved in. Um, so that's my view on the matter, and you have a right to hold your particular. And the fact, by the way, that uh, a person is a priest doesn't mean that the ch- the parent, the child, is right. also. I know pastors who got very heathen sons, mm-hmm. even though they're pastors. So the assumption that because somebody is a pastor or a priest or some religious person, it means naturally that the, ch- the offspring is going to be that way, I think that's a, mis- a misnomer. and mis- But I think the language that is used in her description after she'd actually done the act when she realized that Moses was going to be killed, I really think that Moses said to her, unless you subscribe these kids, I'm going to die. And I think she did it, but she did it resentfully. She did it, and they say, "This bless you're a bloody man." And this blood, I think that expression shows you clearly that she was not in harmony um, or in concord with what um, circumcision. I think that was more indicative of her spirit and her attitude than the fact that she was a, a daughter of a priest. No matter where you are listening from tonight, whether it is. In St. Martin, whether it is in Anguilla or whether it is in another hemisphere of this globe, we are thankful that you are tuned in. And let me encourage you to invite others, encourage others to tune in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and specifically, especially on Tuesday evenings, to ask their questions to Pastor Murphy. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 846. Uh, Pastor, question in relation to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19. That verse says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the question is, Pastor, what are these keys mentioned in Matthew sixteen nineteen, and how do they relate to Peter? Well, remember that the key gives entrance or access. If I have a key to your door, it means I have access 
to your office. And of course, the key, of course, also speaks of authority. Uh, I think that when you check the book of Acts, it, it becomes very clear what this key was that was given, these keys that were given to, to, to Peter. Uh, because Peter is the apostle that opened the door to three different major sectors of humanity. In uh, Acts chapter 2, he was the one that gave the message that opened the door to the Jews to be saved. In other words, the Jewish church was started by the message that Peter preached. I think about 5,000 got saved that day on Pentecost. So he opened the key, the entrance door, uh, that people can be, the Jews can be forgiven because he carried a message of forgiveness through Christ, that Christ was crucified and Christ was resurrected. And there the Jews had actually delivered the Messiah into the hands of the Gentiles to be crucified. And they became so, had such, had such a sense of guilt because they convicted part of the Holy Spirit. And the men said, what shall we do? And then he said, you know, uh, repent and believe and be baptized, etc., etc. So that is the first key where the, Genti- the, the Jews were now entered into the church. The second time we find Peter open the key is when he went to when the, uh, an event happened in Samaria, where those that were scattered delivered the message, and the Samaritans believe. But the Holy Spirit was not given to the Samaritans uh, until Peter came down and laid his hands on them, so that the Samaritans now enter the kingdom as well. Peter, who has the key? Peter has the key. Then we come to Acts chapter 10. And that's when the Gentiles are now entered into the kingdom. A man called Cornelius. He's praying. He wants to know the way. He's a, a, a proselyte, a righteous man. And uh, he wants to find light. And the Lord tells him to go and send for Peter who's at Joppa. And Peter has a vision. He's on a, a house stop. And he saw all these uh, unclean animals in a sheet. And the Lord says, uh, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord said, what I have made clean, call thou not unclean. It's a principle there that he considered the, the Gentiles. He would now learn that the unclean Gentiles, that he is going to be the one to open the door to the unclean Gentiles, who were the pagan Gentiles. And we find that in Acts chapter 10, when he begins to preach, Cornelius hears the word about Christ, the Holy Spirit comes, and Cornelius and his family are converted. So you've got Peter opening the door to the Jews, the door to the Samaritans, and the door to the Gentiles. These are the keys that the Lord gave Peter. It was the evangelistic ministry that initiate Gentile conversion, Samaritan conversion, and Jewish conversion. Those are the keys. Uh, the Catholic Church has taken that to mean that you can only come to the Catholic Church, which was founded on the base of Peter, to be in the kingdom, right? Whether people know it or not, you cannot enter the kingdom of God except through the Catholic Church. It's the only true church. That's what they believe, because Peter is founded on Peter, and Peter had the keys. So in order, in order to get into the kingdom, you've got to come to the Catholic Church. That is the fundamental belief of the Catholic Church. And that's why she considered all the other groups that came out of the part as estranged brethren or apostates, basically. So that's why the Pope is trying to once again bring all these estranged children home, bring back the, the, the Lutherans and the Reformists and the Calvinists and all these different groups, bring them as come back home to the Mother Church, right? Because it's only in the Mother Church where there's redemption. And that's the abuse of the text that uh, happens today. And people need to understand that 
the key has already been used, the gent door has been opened to the Jews, been opened to the Samaritans, who are a mongrel group between the Jews and the Gentiles, and also the, the, the Gentile believers. Was Peter the first pope? There's no... Of course not. Uh, that's a, a given. Uh, I, I can give you a reason for that. The Pope can't be married. Peter was married. He had a wife, so he can't be the first Pope. <laughs> a question from a listener. When God came for the Jews, if the Jews had accepted him, what would that mean for the Gentiles? Well, again, remember that in the Old Testament, the Jews were supposed to be a... Uh, centrifugal force by their culture by their lifestyle by every aspect of their lives they were supposed to be uniquely different that would cause the pagan Gentile nations that were wrapped up in idolatry and immorality they'd be attracted to something much more profound much more beautiful much more holy there were to be a shining light to draw the Gentiles uh, to the Lord that probably would have been the same thing that would happen in the New Testament, that if they had responded to the gospel and uh, the Gentiles would be drawn to the Jewish faith because of the transformation that they would have exhibited having uh, come to Christ and um, enjoyed the blessings of God. No, because that did not happen, uh, their unbelief caused God to set them aside, as Paul says, and uh, put them on the shelf. And then what God did was to graft in the Gentiles into his program. Now, individual Jews can still get saved, but Jews as a nation are in unbelief. So what God is working with now is what you call the church, and the church is made up of Jew and Gentiles. Uh, so they, that's how we, and now we have become not a centripetal force, uh, a centripetal uh, force, where we are now to go out into all the world and declare the gospel. And that's what our mission is today. But um, if the Jews had responded, there would have been a centrifugal force to draw the Gentiles in. Uh, but because of the rejection, God had to ch- uh, use the Gentiles to form the Gentile church. And of course, today, the church is open to both Jew and Gentile. And that would be the dif- difference. Thank you for your questions. We have about seven minutes left in this episode. You can quickly WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 1454 And if you get it to us very quickly, Pastor will have a chance to give you a quick answer here at the end of this episode. While we wait for your question, Pastor, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh Mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. I wish I had an absolute dogmatic answer that I can give to the person who asked that question, but I would suggest to you that if you look at the context of Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about an out-of-body experience that he had where he was taken up to the third heaven and he heard things that could not be uttered. And when he came back out of that experience, uh, a thorn was given in, in, in his flesh to keep Paul humble. In other words, what Paul heard and seen were so elevating, the temptation would have been to broadcast what he's seen and maybe boast about the excellency of knowledge that he now has, which is superior to anybody else because he's third. Th- and the Lord said, you know, to keep you humble, uh, a thorn was given to Paul. Now, what incident in Paul's life 
could have perhaps um, m- um, mesh with an out-of-body experience where like he's somehow taken to heaven and given a vision of what is there. I think the best suggestion is to link this experience with what happened in Acts chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. Can you read that? Acts chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. Those verses say, And there came hither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, threw him out of the city, supposing him dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas. Now remember, in in Second Corinthians chapter 12, this could be the very experience that Paul had. That you remember that Paul was at Lystra; mm-hmm. they wanted to worship him, and Paul said, "Listen, you don't, you don't worship me. I'm just a man like you are." And then the people were able to arouse him, so that they decided, "Now, well, listen, if you don't want worship, you better, better stone you." So Paul was stoned, and it seemed quite clearly that somehow everybody thought Paul was dead. He was dragged out to the city, and the disciples stand around, and somehow Paul is able to resuscitate. So they seemed to be, had some kind of a, a, a out of body or out of a death experience where, but the Lord, that was not the end of the Apostle Paul. And it is possible that this is what the, the Paul is talking about, that he had this, he went at the third heaven, he saw things he could not be uttered. Um, so, I, I believe then that uh, as a result of this, what is this thorn then that could explain, uh, was it some kind of a body affliction that hindered the Apostle Paul Maybe like Jacob, he, he could no longer be as mobile as he wanted to. Remember that Paul is an itinerant missionary going all over the globe preaching the gospel. It's something physical that is impeding Paul's capacity to minister with the freedom that he desires. So could it be that he was damaged as a result of that stoning, and that damage was an impediment to the progress and the freedom that he wanted? There's another good explanation, I think, if you find it in... Um, Galatians four thirteen to 15, and this is where a lot of scholars believe that this is the real problem that happened on that day. Galatians four thirteen to 15. You know how through infirmity of flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of for I bear your record that if it had been possible ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. It seems uh, it's another passage um, I've got to give you where Paul says uh, have I not sent this letter to you in large letters it it seemed that somehow um, the suggestion is made that when Paul was stoned some part of him was defigured that related to his eye. And when Paul is preaching to them, they could see this infirmity in Paul's body. So they think it's connected to his vision. He said, That's why he said, you know, I was there, and if you could have given me your eyes, you would give me your eyes. It's as though, you know, you realize I had a problem with my eyes, and uh, you were willing uh, to give me so I can probably minister more effectively, being able to, to read better, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that that is what uh, this impediment is all about. It is a problem that Paul has that's in his flesh that is impeding his capacity and freedom to worship, to, to serve as he would want to. 
it's like a hindrance to him, whether it be the eyesight or some kind of a physical uh, incapacity that he has, it is hindering his ministry. And the reason for that, he discovered, is that God said, you know what, I want to keep you humble. This revelation you saw could make you big-headed, and you become suffer from elephantitis uh, megalomania, big-headedness. So I'm going to humble you and keep you, and my grace is going to be sufficient for you, even though I don't remove this thorn. In the last 15 seconds, a question from a listener. What does the Bible mean when it says men of renown? Uh, men of greatness, men of significance, men who have high reputation, men have done great exploits. Thank you very much for your interaction with us on the program tonight. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.